but um, we're she's gonna have to um, charcoal grill it with a wood grill, and we're, and we're getting all that stuff together. It's probably more work than it's worth. And she's trying to come up with a new brine for the because she's using Cornish hens. Mm-hmm. I, you know, if I had my druthers, she would just do thighs. Thighs are the best meat. Best. Yeah, meat. I agree. But I I'm agree. not sure people would agree with that. So she's doing. Oh, I'm, I'm with hens. you. Thighs are way better than breasts. Yeah. Oh yeah. But she's doing. Yeah, uh, but people are so like. Yeah. They've only been eating breast for years now. Yeah. yeah. I like it dry and white. <laughs> well, you're definitely ready for the new it describes our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and <laughs> sorry. No, it's okay. Hello and welcome to another episode of Discovering Darwin, a podcast dedicated to the writings and musings of Charles Darwin. Uh, my name is James Wagner. I'm your host of this uh, podcast, and I am joined this season by um, 100% organic, gluten-free, all-natural philosophers, Dr. Sarah Bray. Hello, Sarah. Hey, friends. Good <laughs> hey. to be back. It's good to have you back. Sarah is a professor of biology and associate dean at Transylvania University. And we are joined this season by our esteemed colleague, Dr. Mark Jackson, associate professor of psychology and director of faculty fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Mark. What's up, James? How are you? Yeah, I thought about you the other day because, uh, a gentle listener, you don't you don't know this, but Mark is well known for his uh, interesting choice of apparel. He has jackets, dapper, that... sartorial, professorial look. Yes, and he wears these interesting uh, blazers that he can invert into different colors. So you know, he has the somber look, but then he can have the party look. He's got <laughs> trousers that have interesting lining in the pockets, and I was wondering, Mark. Uh, I have found myself being very um, sad that I can't dress the part of a professor. Um, I, Sarah, I, I, because I'm sitting in my office chair, kind of squashed like the golem, instead of you know, <laughs> s- you know, marching, you know, peacocking around the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> and last summer I was in Scotland, and I went ahead and just said, you know what? I've only I got to do this. I bought myself a Harris Tweed blazer. Yeah, nice. the professor, the real deal, yeah. the real deal, deal, and yeah. it's super smart and sweet, and it's in a, a bag with some cedar chips. And <laughs> when will I get to wear it? Bust it out, man! Wear it. <laughs> uh, you, don't, I, you don't have to be in class. It's not a show. It's your identity. Let's <laughs> <laughs> well, see. This is why you are the that, director. Therein lies the problem. <laughs> you gotta live it, man. <laughs> Well, it has been a difficult year for us all. And uh, gentle listener, I have no idea when you'll be listening to this podcast. It could be years from now. But right now it is September 2020, and we're in the midst of a pandemic, and we're academics trying to maintain the status quo, uh, teaching through computers and Zooms. And Sarah's one of the uh, secure boards of our ship keeping us afloat, (laughs) doing whatever she can. And I appreciate it. Just keep it. swimming. Just keep swimming. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, and not just that. I mean, 20, September 2020 has turned into a shit show. So maybe it's a part of it. that we're talking about grief. Yes. yes. This is to, after last night's news of our loss of uh, RGB. Um, or wait, did I say it right? The fly just yeah. flew right in front of me. Yes. RBG. RBG. R- yes, yeah, that's what I thought. RBG. 
Yes. Uh, and RGB is red, green, blue. Yeah, that is it. <laughs> <laughs> and but. Yes, we don't want to go down this pathway. Um, But welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to be working on a new uh, chapter seven of Darwin's uh, book, which I always cannot remember the order of the words in this title for some reason. So I just call it Emma to myself. But it is the expression of the emotions in man and animals. And chapter seven is low spirits, anxiety, grief, dejection, and despair. As you said, Mark, we couldn't have picked a better topic for <laughs> this month's podcast. So having said that, I wanted to, uh, Sarah, as we were getting ready f- to record, you had mentioned that this this book so far has seemed like, I think it was a great term you used, a field guide. Could you sort of elaborate on why you're thinking this this book, particularly this chapter, maybe seemed more like a field guide? Yeah, well, he goes into great depth of explaining exactly what muscles are contracted and what kind of appearance that creates. And so I feel like it's like you're sitting, you know, with your binoculars and everything. And instead of like looking for a, you know, a crest on a bird or a chest patch instead, we're creepily staring at our colleagues looking for the horseshoe on their forehead. There's a lot of forehead staring like yes. all this. Yeah. It, yeah. In fact, even in the one, um, I don't know if you both picked up on this, but in Darwin's original, he has this plate too. And so it's people having this characteristic um, uh, horseshoe that he's talking about. Um, but there's one, this woman that he actually cropped the rest of her face off in the original one, like just put the forehead in because he found the rest of her face distracting from, <laughs> <laughs> from his field guide, you know, uh, look for this description. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the language here is uh, 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 pretty dense. I, I found myself so far in these two chapters that we've been really getting into the, uh, the issue, I found myself going through the same, excuse me, I'm cough. <coughs> the Rona! The Rona. We're edit that out or we're all going to catch it. <laughs> I was going to say, I found myself going through the same uh, thought process. First, I try to read this chapter and I'm bored to tears because, as you said, Sarah, it's like reading descriptive elements only. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll, give you, we'll, we'll give you, dear listener, a, a taste of that in a minute. But after kind of pushing my way through this uh, very dry text. I then reflect on what he's talking about, and I'm like, oh, wow, actually, this is kind of interesting. He's really focusing on something that I, you know, hadn't really put much thought to, this whole idea of, say, you know, last episode we talked about the, the presence of tears and making tears. And then here, grief, this idea of having a certain kind of emotion with, uh, associated with loss. And then all of a sudden, something that's so obvious to you, you're starting to look at differently than you did before. And I think that's kind of been what keeps me going is that maybe I'll have a new thought of how to see things. But I don't know if you guys do. You guys find yourself when you're reading it. I'm like constantly making faces because I'm like, (laughs) you know, trying to make my eyebrows do the thing. And like, then I go and look in the mirror and see if I can make the horseshoe and. You know, I, I'm I sure if someone I, watched me, it would be like really hilarious. It's, you know, when I, when I teach emotion, when I start introducing, you know, the six <sighs> basic emotions as psychologists think about it now in my class, uh, when I announce, when I get the students to make the face, I say, show me your angry face, right? And then we all look at each other. <laughs> show me your happy face. We all look at each other just to kind of 
point out that we know what we're talking. I mean, you know what the face is, right? We, we recognize it, even if we're putting it on. You can recognize a facsimile of it. A facsimile of it, which is odd, right? Because um, is, you don't really know what your face is doing most of the time. What, like, Mark, you don't, oh, Mark, did you know what your face was totally doing? Totally aware what my face is doing, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Not all of it, most of it. Most 80% of, it. of my face, I know what's going on. <laughs> but the but, brow up. Brow up only. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the question is whether uh, those, your students who are trying to recreate that, so do you, mm-hmm. think they're, do you think they're actually, like, imagining a happy moment in their life, or are they actually just trying to be, like, Maneuvering yeah, no, I, the I think they're, they're picturing what a uh, happy face looks like and trying to put that on their face, right? trying to mimic that. So it's, it's not great, I mean, what they do, but uh, mm-hmm. it's enough. <laughs> Which is interesting. But, well, right? and, again, and it gets them thinking about their face, right? thinking about the body language that's associated with. And of course, you know, as, as we were talking a little bit about earlier, uh, you know, Darwin seems to really focus, at least in this chapter, in the, the previ- on, on the face. But I would argue that, you know, there's there's a lot a lot of other body language that goes on with the experience of these emotions. I'm curious when we get to like particularly shame, when he talks about shame, if it's all just face stuff or if it gets to, you know, that, that our our we, we get smaller, right? When we experience shame. We mm. we curl up, we you know, we crouch down, we want to hide. Uh yeah, so there, there's of, a sorry, go sorry. Ahead. Yeah, but that the, there is this whole this whole this whole body expression uh when it comes to certain emotions. Well, having said that, Sarah, do you mind reading to us some of this riveting text? Sure. Um, When a person elevates his eyebrows by the contraction of the whole frontal muscle, transverse wrinkles extend across the whole breadth of the forehead. But in the present case, the middle fasciae alone are contracted. Consequently, transverse furrows are formed across the middle part alone of the forehead. The skin over the exterior parts of the eyebrows is at the same time drawn downward and smooth by the contraction of the outer portions of the orbicular muscles. The eyebrows are likewise brought together through the simultaneous contraction of the corrugators, and this later action generates vertical furrows separating the exterior and lower part of the skin of the forehead from the central and raised part. Yeah. Is that enough for us or should I continue? Oh, yeah. the next sentence. <laughs> As is, it goes on. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> the union of these vertical furrows with the central and transverse furrows, see figures two and three, <clears throat> produce a mark on the forehead, which has been compared to a horseshoe. But the furrows are more strictly forming three sides of a quadra angle. And then, and it continues. And then below there, it generates a half page footnote. So, uh, gentle listener, I hope I hope you're still with us. Um, but yes, there's you're pages welcome. Pages. We've read it for you, so you don't have, have to. to. That's right. <laughs> Just call us Sparks. Um, so, and and as you said, Mark, most of the descriptions are actually, and you're right in this chapter, just facial uh, expressions. I do remember in the previous chapter he mentioned, like I guess, fist clenching was right. the only other bodily so, yeah. kind yeah. of. Uh, expression. So grief as a concept here, though, is he, he starts it with uh, the chapters, low spirits, anxiety, grief, dejection, and despair. And I believe, Sarah, you wanted us to explore the actual word grief and whether that's what Darwin's talking about. Yeah, I guess I, so first of all, Ekman already right off the top says, I don't think Darwin knows what he's talking. Well, he says, I don't think Darwin 
means what he thinks he means when he says the word grief and Ekman breaks it down actually into two different um I don't know if Mark if you'd call it emotions or or moods yeah moods yeah, yeah I don't know flavors maybe State. um what's that like I think of distress as more of a state. It's not necessarily tied to a yeah. particular emotion. You know, we experience lots of different kinds of distress. Yeah. So he, you know, Ekman breaks it down mm-hmm. into um, distress, which is he says is Darwin's description of the violent and almost frantic moments of grief. So that like moment that you actually have the event that causes right the response, like uh, your father died. Boom. Right. Um, and then um, he called sadness the state which follows the, the uh, distress period. So this kind of like, okay, now the shock or whatever of it has passed. Um, the other reason why I guess I, it's interesting that the title is Low Spirits, Anxiety, Grief, Dejection, and Despair. But I, for the most part in the chapter, Darwin always only says grief. Um, and I guess for me, I again i think of grief as being a specific response to a loss is that fair to everyone else that that's what grief means yes okay and and some of his you know examples are specifically that but even you know the plate that's in this chapter he talks about these the pictures of children and the expression that they have is in response to something much different from grief so it was like in one case the kid has been slugged by another kid and you know that's how they they capture that so um this is just you know again this idea that i've been struggling with as we've been reading this book which is that i often feel like i don't i'm not using the same language as darwin and so i'm having a hard time like identifying i don't know it's just this interesting overlap of the linguistics and this like expression Mark, what do you, when you read it, did you uh, have the same reaction? Um, yeah, they does play a little fast and loose with, uh, with the term. But again, you know, uh, you know, we're not, I'm not living in 19th century England, so I don't know, you know, what the vernacular was. But, but you know, when, when he does give specific examples, he talks about a state. I mean, he may be using the term grief, but we can certainly go, oh, you know, that kid's experiencing despair or, uh, you know, feeling a kind of impotent rage or, uh, or yes, that's clearly grief, right. That, that, uh, is being described here. So that's just how I've dealt with it, you know, is, is trying to look at the context a little bit, but of course, then when he's, he spends, although <laughs> I'd say he spends so much time talking about all the muscles that are activated. And I don't really spend a lot of time figuring out the context there. Cause I'm really not paying that close attention. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so can we, like, Go oh, on, so- you do your thing, and now let's get to the real stuff. Yeah. Come on, come on, Chucky. Chucky, me. <laughs> give me something. <laughs> so, as a concept of grief, we're agreeing that it is a, an emotion associated with loss. Yes, and mm-hmm. I am anyway. Yeah. Uh, no, I, th- I think that's fair, <laughs> and that's kind of how I read this chapter, and um, and that's basically what I hung on to when I did the rest of the thinking because I was intrigued by that idea of he's showing he's showing pictures of children and it this reminds me of the previous episode when we talked about uh tears and that how children express tears or children express grief for certain contact contextual reasons 
which are quite different than the when adults express tears or adults express grief, right? Often uh, for adults, there's a wider range of situations in which we would express grief. Whereas in a child, it may be uh, the, the loss of attachment, abandonment. They get lost in a department store and they go, they're very, you know, upset and ex express that sorrow and grief because they can't find their parents. Um, but it's not all the other kinds of ways in which adults express grief. Does that make sense, what I'm, what I'm thinking? I mean, in terms of the things that, that are sort of the source of the emotional experience? Yes. That those differ? That triggers that response, that expression of that emotion. I would say it's still loss, right? Don't you think? Or maybe I, maybe I misunderstood. But, you know, the, no, I, mean, I think it's still loss, but I think the range of things that you feel that emotional reaction to loss mm -hmm. is greater in adults than it is in children. Like I'm wondering, I'm, I'm actually pushing on this because I'm thinking, is grief in adults just an extension of that adaptive behavior in mother and child, a child at early stages of when, you know, you panic when you can't find your offspring, you panic when you can't find your parent. There's advantages for that kind of being upset and grief and having that loss of attachment. And then because there's such strong selection for that emotion in young and, and in the, the parents for their young, we still have it and it gets expressed in these other contexts. Yeah, but I, I think I, you could still argue that you know, even as adults, I mean, that, that expression of grief is something that brings people to us. We, we feel, you know, as adults, you see someone grieving and you, you want to go over, you want to, you know, offer comfort or, you know, assistance in some way. So it perhaps st still serves the same function. Maybe the, the needs are slightly different, but the, the function of bringing others to us uh, is, st is still served by grief, eliciting compassion and empathy from others. It's funny because as you were saying that, James, I was thinking, I would think that um, children express greater range of grief. Like, I, I so you took my toy from me. Um, you know, wow, I don't know. That was a weird voice I had there. I like um, it. <laughs> it was an 18th like, century kid. Yeah, it was like some kind Anyway, um, where and maybe this is just more of the sense of like a cultural enforcement of controlling the expression of emotion, right? That um, I feel like kids express it all the time over many different things. Whereas like adults mm. would say, oh, you know, I can't sit there and grieve over my ice cream that fell lost off pencil. Cone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I think you could maybe also make an argument that it's just a it's just a different palette of experiences, right? So, you know, the, a child's not going to grieve over the loss of a job because <laughs> they don't have jobs, right? Uh, <laughs> and adults don't grieve over the loss of their teddy bear because we don't, most of us, we have teddy bears anymore, right? So it's not, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the expression of, of that, in response to loss is consistent is what we're saying. And, and just the object of what we lose changes depending on where we are in our stage yeah. of life. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair, yeah. yeah. I think so. So, okay, having said that, then Sarah, you're, you, you said you thought he wasn't talking about grief in this chapter or do you think he wasn't talking about the other things that even though they're on the chapter title, like? Yeah, anxiety. I guess that's the that's the thing. It's just it was interesting to me that that was the 
the focus and because and and maybe it's like he's saying that it's the same expression for all of these but i'm just going to talk about it in terms of grief because you know like dejection despair low spirits in some ways those make more sense to me in talking about the expression um i guess maybe this is maybe this is what it is is for me why my why i'm struggling is that i think of grief as being this much longer experience and so i don't see it in the way that mark has talked about emotion which should be this kind of immediate right fleeting type of reaction rather than a mood or whatever do we want to get make a distinction between grief as an emotion and grieving as a process maybe that's what i'm hung up on yeah maybe that's it so go ahead mark do that for us emotion emotional (laughs) experience is despair right but grief is this process feeling of loss well grief is the coming well here i am expert sarah um is is the coming to terms with that loss right Whereas the despair is the emotional feeling of the loss. Is that a fair way to think about it? Or not? That's not how no. I think Mark's about like, it. Mark's like, no. No, that sounds reasonable to me. No, that's just my, that's my thinking brow. That's, just, that's not my grieving brow. Not your grief muscles. That's your think muscle. No, isn't yeah. grief, though, the realization of the loss? That's it. Boom. And with that realization of that loss, whatever that loss is, my dad's not dead or my spouse has passed away then i get this facial expression right the horseshoe the eyebrows at a at an angle um face distraught that's grief realization and then comes the um, the secondary things the despair if i feel one way or is, is yeah and you know i mean this may just be a uh, an issue of semantics that yeah, we're working through you know um yeah, there, there is this this surge, as we would think of an emotion, as this very short-lived, subjective, intense physiological thing that we call grief. But then we also think of grief as that process of how we handle this loss, what we do with that. And, and that, you know, <clears throat> varies in length for everybody. In fact, actually, that's kind of one of the things in uh, the, the, the psych literature talking about grief is that uh, in terms of the experience the experience of that process uh, is really very varied. There's a lot of individual differences. Uh, and maybe that's what I'm being influenced by also is that, you know, James, you had dropped um, a chapter by, I don't know if we've figured out how we're supposed to say his name, Ness, niece, Nessie. Nessie. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's got three anyway. E's in his name. So yeah, there's so many. E's. Yeah. And he's, so he's a very famous um, uh, proponent of kind of evolutionary medicine. And so you had dropped this um, chapter in there. And and towards the end of the chapter, he kind of talks about this idea of um, whether or not some people have this like delayed grief or whatever, where they don't experience the grief feelings immediately or, and this is, he was talking about, it was a study on, you know, older people who lost a spouse and that some people um, never described having truly grief in the sense of like feeling a loss. Um, and he explained it over various time points, you know, up through six months a year. And so I think maybe that's the thing is like, I'm thinking of it as this process that happens, right? You process through your grief or whatever, or a certain period of time versus that 
instantaneous emotion and maybe Ness Nisi Ness Nisi na 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 um, <laughs> has got me. <laughs> He's thinking about those issues. I don't. Know. But I think what I I find interesting here is that Darwin recognizes that very uh, short-lived facial expression, or, or short-lived, relatively short-lived, right? It'll, it'll last much less than the actual feeling that you have of grieving. So are, is, are we, should we be thinking about them separately then, going to the idea of that grief expression versus the grieving that comes later or comes, it, it persists? I think for our conversation, we, we, we can't, I mean, they are two different things. For Darwin, all he's focused on is that, that moment, that, yeah. that expression. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's interesting, too, when we think about that, that, ex, that ex expression of emotion, of grief, that facial expression, that intense uh, expression of the realization of loss, that we also recognize there's a range in how much of that you can give, right? That you can be either, uh, if you don't do it at all, you're looked at as kind of odd if you exhibit no grief, or if you exhibit grief for a very long time, like if you maintain that facial expression for weeks on end, people might find that a little bit off-putting. So I think it's kind of interesting that, that we as humans recognize there's a, a, an acceptable level of grief <laughs> that's somewhere in between no grief and too much grief. But I, and I, I think, though, there's a great deal of cultural variation in that, though, right? That you know, what we as a Western and particularly even a U.S., what we see as an appropriate amount of grief d does require a certain degree of expression and you know, uh, explicit bereavement. Uh, but then after a time that should be put away and you've, you've moved on, you've put it behind you. Um, but you look at like, oh gosh, I, uh, uh, for one of my classes, I, I, I play this, uh, this wonderful, this American life clip that talks about, um, oh, what was the, the town in Japan that was essentially wiped out with the, uh, tsunami that came through. Oh, I'm totally blanking on the name. Fukushima? Fukushima. 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 Yeah. Was, oh. but, uh, well, oh, yeah. The neighboring town. It was a result of the tidal wave. Yes. Yeah. Right. 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 That, that meltdown. Yeah. Anyway, and so, well, yeah, this is perhaps a longer story than I want, want to give. But, but basically, this guy built this telephone booth out in the middle of nowhere that was hooked up to nothing, uh, with the intention. Actually, built it for himself so that he could go talk to his brother who was missing and you know wiped out in the this thing. And then people started coming from all over, folks who had lost loved ones, which, you know, most of this town was like gone, uh, coming to this phone booth to talk on the phone, again, hooked to nothing. They call it the wind phone. Uh, and, and having these really emotional, uh, uh, expressly, explicitly emotional experiences in the, the, the phone booth. Many that they wouldn't have outside of that phone booth. And for a number of them hadn't had uh, for a year until they came to this phone booth. So, so that expression of grief for us uh, that we would see as an appropriate level, we would perceive as you're not grieving enough, right? Because they're, they're, they're swallowing that expression. I don't, I, maybe swallowing is not the right word. Because um, I, you know, I think in our cultural context, when we talk about swallowing, it's a kind of repression or denial. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's the case necessarily, but it's, it's this refusal to, to be overt about the expression mm -hmm. of it. So then... Um... 
why do we exhibit the grief? What is the adva evolutionary advantage, the selective advantage for that? And if, if there is one, I'm going to go ahead and play the second card to this. <laughs> if there is one, then why is a lot of, of that kind of grief done in, uh, in solitude? Because if you're going to use it to solicit support and, and care from others, that makes sense. But a lot of times people cry and sob and grief and go into a phone booth that nobody else can hear. And so it becomes a, a, an expression all by themselves for just themselves. Well, and I, I mean, I think this is maybe where sometimes these individual differences start to emerge. But we, you know, we certainly can point to instances of of very public outcrying of grief. You know, go look at the steps of the Supreme Court right, right now. You know, mm -hmm. um, and you know, and there are cultures that embrace that as well. Uh, you know, you uh, I think about sit and Shiva. You know, for uh, mm -hmm. the, the Jews do for the you know, there's a, this explicit you know seven day period of of mourning, right? The expression of grief that you do with your family, right? Uh, in the home of the, 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 the person who's, uh, who's died. And there's all sorts of rituals there too. You sit very close to the floor, mirrors are covered, candles burning, you tear clothes, like you have to warn torn clothes uh, as part of that grieving process. So, yeah, I mean, so maybe, <laughs> I think my frustration with this book has been that it's not the, it's not my Chuck. Um, it's not the Charles I know in that I keep looking for these kinds of like connections to evolutionary reasons for things. But even just what you just said, Mark, would almost suggest it's, it's just so culturally defined that it's harder for me than even because I'm, I'm, I'm grasping for it so hard, right. To try to find this like kind of evolutionary um, explanation for it. But is it then if it's has this much variability in what's perceived well, as correct? I know, I, you know, there's 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 perhaps variability in the degree of expression, right? But the expression itself, in terms of the facial expression, let's say, is fairly universal, right? Uh, again, the degree to which we try to suppress it or not is uh, 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 perhaps culturally bound to a certain extent. Um, but the experience is certainly. I think we could argue is pretty universal too. You know, I can't imagine a culture that does not experience grief over the yeah. loss of it's like what ofs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Shit happens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, actually, I think with that, I'd like to take a break because I'd like to come back and ask why that is the case, Mark. I mean, you said it so positively and we all like, yeah, that seems crazy, but I'd like to in flip that and ask that's, why. That's that just how I talk about things, James. Uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> Sarah, <laughs> we're going to talk about the paper you had us read about whether or not uh, emotions are a, a social construct is kind of what I'm hearing from Sarah somewhat. <laughs> not to put words in your mouth, Sarah. <laughs> I'll, I'll fight that in the next segment. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> um, it's hey, a good Mark, conversation to have. Yeah. Take a, take us out. Give us a break. Let's take a break because it's time to take a break. I, <laughs> okay, you're going to edit that out too, right? Because that was – I have no if, idea. If, if you get a mulligan on the beginning, I get, I get a mulligan <laughs> on this. <laughs> so take us out. All right. We'll be right back. Uh, we're all going to head off and do a thing, and then we'll come back and, and, and talk about this again. You're listening to Discovering Darwin. <laughs> I've got all the best words. Bloom, despair, and agony. 
Welcome back to Discovering Darwin. Uh, we just started a conversation about whether or not uh, emotions themselves are real or social constructs. And uh, Mark basically described that, and then when we said that, he said no. So now... <laughs> So I'm going to open the floor up, and, and Sarah, you had us read this very interesting paper. And in fact, when we first thought of this podcast and when we first discussed uh, uh, with Mark having him join us, which we're very excited that he agreed to do that, we had this conversation about whether or not there are universal emotions that are found across all humans, and, um, and if that is the case, what are those well-known, established, universal Roy G. Biv of emotions, <laughs> right? Um, and so, Sarah, you had us read this paper. Do you want to introduce this paper idea and uh, and then see where it goes? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, um, so this was a paper that came out in in December of 2019, before the world went to hell, and um, it came out in the journal Science, which um, probably most of our listeners will know that that is a huge flagship journal like if you're in there you're the bomb legit. you're legit yeah. it's a premier journal yeah yeah and um so the the title of the article is emotion semantics show both cultural variation and universal structure and um it, uh, joshua conrad jackson uh i assume of no relation to mark jackson as far Not as we know yeah no okay um is the lead author on this and i looked a little bit um i think I think he was a grad student when he was doing this. Um, uh, so yeah, pretty, pretty, ooh, pretty good stuff. Um, anyway, so they're, he, he's from, you know, his training, he's in a psychology department, but they're using language to try to get at whether or not there are these universal um, emotions. And, and this is the one again, where I'm, I'm glad that there are peer reviewers out there because <laughs> there's some things about the approach that I don't, um, I assume, uh, other people understood, but in general, it was pretty cool that they went and looked at kind of these, what they called co-lexification. So instances where you might have multiple words explaining the same kind of emotion or, 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 or not even emotion, anything, right? So they compare this um, emotional lexicon to colors, right? Across cultures to see if there's more agreement in, in the concept, um, among cultures, depending on, you know, what we're looking at here. And so they kind of had a couple sets of maybe hypotheses or questions, which was, well, yeah, how common are con our conceptions of uh, emotions? And then um, are our conceptions of emotions more similar the more geographically close we are so the idea there would be that well okay within a language family um you're gonna have more more trade if that language other language family is closer to you so because of that right you're gonna have some cultural overlap and maybe you'll think about these ideas in the same way um, and you're also probably more likely to have uh, a recent common ancestor in common and i mean that not in a biological sense but in the like the the origin of languages sense. So that's kind of the context. Um, Can, do you mind if I back up and just kind of iterate yeah. some ideas here? Because I think this mm -hmm. is, it's subtly uh, challenging to understand what they're talking about because, because we're kind of bound by language ourselves. <laughs> and so sometimes we forget, like, so when we think of the concept of, the word, of love as an as a idea and, a, and an emotion, it doesn't 
we don't doubt it, but the question that they bring up is, is that word love the same in English as it is in other languages? And uh, so you had, I saw you Instagrammed a quote from here, right? (laughs) Do you mind reading that one? Because I thought it may help the reader or the listener understand what we're getting at here, where there's uh, words that that don't exist in our language. Yeah, so this was in the the opening paragraph, and it's a very 2020 statement. Although not all emotion words are common, the German word schensucht, I don't know how to do German, so I'm sorry to our German listeners. Uh, The German word schensucht refers to a strong desire for an alternative life and has no direct translation in English. (laughs) There are many words that appear to name similar emotional states across the world's spoken languages. Right. Um, so and, and go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, so yeah, what, what they're exploring is if we think about um, river and ocean, those words to us often get associated with each other where uh, ocean and mountains may not get associated with each other. And so right. they're exploring sort of groups of words that often get associated with each other and how those relate to emotional words. Right. Yes. So, uh, yeah. And, and th- I mean, they're trying to imply that it's a, as I read it, right, that there, there are these kind of central emotional concepts, which we might think of as basic emotions, the right? universal like, emotions. Uh, yeah, like uh, you know, joy or happiness and sadness and anger and fear and these others. But that in, in different languages, th- those words are more closely associated with other related emotional concepts and that those related emotional concepts are slightly different from culture to culture, which gives us, at least as I understood it, they're trying to say that the, the, sh- the shade of uh, an emotion like grief in one culture might be slightly different than the shades of grief in another culture. Whereas one, gr- one culture thinks of grief more closely allied with anxiety uh, another culture may think of grief more closely allied with regret, you know, uh, but again, not dismissing that there isn't grief across cultures. Cause if, you know, at least these maps that, uh, uh, they've, they're kind of displaying for us, there are these kind of central emotion terms that pop up in every one. Right. Um, but the degree to which they're allied with others, uh, varies from culture to culture. Yes. Yeah. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. So they kind of color coded these, um, these emotion maps, if you will. And so you can kind of see as you, you look among them. So they're universal maps. So when we look across all language families, um, how are these kind of emotions connected? And so I was really mostly focusing on grief for today. Um, and so just like Mike, uh, Mark said, we have grief, um, which at a universal scale seems to be strongly associated with anxiety, regret, uh, to a lesser extent, pity, maybe shame. Um, But then as you move across these different language families, you find, you know, just different kinds of connotations of that. And one I thought that was interesting was, uh, you know, grief, pity, and then love, like that kind of little Mm. grouping or in, uh, I'm not going to say this right at all, Nakdaghestanian language family, and I'm not sure, I'm assuming that's kind of Central Asian maybe. Um, they don't, they actually don't have a grief word, it looks like. It, yeah, it's no, just it's pity and blue. regret. 
That's grief and fear and anxiety. Oh, yeah. Okay, there we go. I kept looking at the it's gray. It's blue, That's yeah. Why. Yeah. I, but Sarah, going back to your universal grouping of emotions, which was our original conversation we had as a uh, when we first thought about this podcast, uh, are there universal emotions, sort of what Darwin is getting at? And what I thought was funny about that map is grief and its little cloud of associated concepts that go with it. Sadness is not in that cloud. Sadness is is over in the green with worry. Right. Even though in this chapter, it's right. It's it's mm-hmm. sort of in, he associates grief with uh, with sadness, and this to me I think was what's intriguing about language where we make that association pretty easily. Nobody would question that as a Westerner, <laughs> but right. it's really shocking to see that for many. And and if you lump globally, it doesn't stick. It gets pulled away statistically, right, to its own little cloud. Well, and, and actually in um, in any of these word clouds, if you want to think of it that way, um, mm-hmm. sadness is is never nested in the in grief. the grief yeah. group. So right. even in for us as English speakers would be an Indo-European family, um, sadness is not in the grief cluster. It's with bad and proud, which is an interesting <laughs> combination, sad, bad, and proud. Hmm. You know, I'm just spitballing here. This is not based on anything other than just what I'm imagining right now. Uh, but it, you know, that may be a sign of privilege, right? <laughs> that that we have the luxury of feeling sad over the loss of uh, those that are close to us, where for, for in other less privileged cultures, it's more threatening right, to lose family members, threatening to, you know, a, a way of life, perhaps. Which is where you're getting the idea of it, it gets more tied with anxiety. Right, and worry. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I no, just... it's, it's, I think it's, what I like about this, it reminds me of that, uh, was it the Chang short story, <laughs> The Story of Your Lives, where he talks about language being used as a time travel device. It was uh, The Arrival, is that what the name of the science fiction movie that was made of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's that idea that we're so bound by our language, that's the world we see because that's the language that we know. And that we only have the words for the emotions that we put words to, <laughs> even though we might have many more emotions, like that German word. I definitely feel that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but we don't have a term for it. Yeah. Or something like schadenfreude. Which exactly. <laughs> everybody knows. And boy, I mean, as a culture, we just... We love it. it. Yeah. yeah. It's slathered on us every time we watch reality television. Yeah. But, uh, but we don't have a specific word for it. And, it, you know, you describe it to someone, they know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's nothing that's foreign. So what does that mean in the context of this um, this discussion about grief then? Is, is Darwin mixing up? Even himself, he, he was wrong in putting some of these other emotions, sadness, for example, into this chapter. Should it have been a separate chapter? Yeah, I guess that's what kind of strikes me, like, is this uh, concept of low spears. And he talks about, um, you know, you, it's even a catch, well, I don't know, catchphrase, but like, why the long face, right? But we all recognize that kind of whole thing with, you know, the the. the torturous explanations we got of the 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 horseshoe brow and the eyebrows and the downturn corners we all recognize that right and we you think of it as a long face um 
I don't know if you read Why the long face? <laughs> Why the long face? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, and, and he talks about um, these across cultures, right? Um, he talks about in Tierra del Fuego, he talks about uh, two different groups within the subcontinent of India mm -hmm. um, and that everyone is kind of, you know, able to read that expression. Um, but yeah, I feel like in my head, that's a sadness expression. But may maybe exactly what Mark said, that that's just a cultural overlay of Western Europeans for it to be sadness, that I'm perceiving it as sadness rather than grief. And I will say, so in two, the, all those examples, those cross-cultural examples he, he gives are examples of loss. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Someone who's lost yeah. something. That's exactly. You mean like uh, that? The goat. Telling story of the goat? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you wanna... So, okay. So, I mean, in the midst of uh, all the, 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 the technical and mind-numbing talk about corrugator muscles and all this sort of stuff, the little stuff like that to me, uh, I mean, I found that actually kind of a heart wrenching story. Yeah, know. it was. Yeah. So you want to you want to read it? Do you mind reading uh, it to us? Sure. It's on sure. page one eighty six. Yeah. And so he describes two cases. This is the second case. Where he says uh, the second case was that of a Hindustani man who, from illness and poverty, was compelled to sell his favorite goat. After receiving the money, he repeatedly looked at the money in his hand and then at the goat as if doubting whether he would not return it. He went to the goat, which was tied up, ready to be led away, and the animal reared up and licked his hands. I'm going to start crying here in a second. <laughs> uh, <laughs> his eyes then wavered from side to side. His mouth was partially closed with the corners very decidedly depressed. At last, the poor man seemed to make up his mind that he must part with his goat. And then, as Mr. Scott saw, the eyebrows became slightly oblique with the characteristic puckering or swelling in the inner ends, but the wrinkles on the forehead were not present. The man stood thus for a minute, then heaving a deep sigh, burst into tears, raised up his two hands, blessed the goat, turned around, and without looking again, went away. So hard, man. Yeah, that's some loss. Ugh. So and I don't even like goats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think last episode you you actually were pretty harsh on goats when we were talking about them. <laughs> goats some sort of, some sort of mall petting zoo experience that you had. Oh yeah. <laughs> See, I do listen to what we talk about. But having said that, Mark, and then having Sarah read have us read this article, which shows a great cultural variation in emotions and associated words with those emotions then are emotions themselves social constructs that each culture then creates the the cloud of of acceptable emotions with that i mean i thought what was interesting in that paper is that yes while our agreement in color concepts is stronger there still is a some level of agreement in in emotion concepts and so the fact that like that universal map um, it's, you know, it is a little different than the individual language families, but you still can see there do seem to be these kind of core ideas, but you know, why exactly? So, so Mark, throw us some knowledge here. Um, why is it that we have more agreement with something like color than something like emotions? 
Well, I think again, because the, not necessarily the experience, but the expressions and contexts are, are influenced by our, our cultural context. Whereas the experience of color isn't so much. I mean, certainly, I mean, there may be the prevalence of color, certain colors, right? More so in some cultures than others. And that's that whole debate, you know, as to whether or not the Greeks could actually see the color blue, you know, mm-hmm. have you heard that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I haven't heard that because yeah, you, the world you know, all the references to, to things that are blue in Greek literature and it's just off it's, like yeah, the wine dark sea, you know, uh, yeah. the rosy fingered dawn kind of thing. And it's not, it's not really blue. So anyway, of course, answering that question is really uh, arguably impossible, but, um, you mean so uh, blue was invented later after the Greeks? Yeah, and, the, the, <laughs> and I don't. I'm, 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 the, yeah, you know, but earlier it was black and white world. I've seen the movies. So right, the world right. had no color. It was a wonderful life back then. But yes. um, <laughs> right, but our, our, our emotions certainly are influenced by. I, I would say much more the expression of emotions much much more influenced by by context, social context. I mean, that being said, I mean there are very clear neurological underpinnings to the experience of certain emotions. Right, we can tie. Uh, you know, the, the, the good feelings, joy, stuff like that to, you know, uh, dopaminergic pathways in our limbic system, uh, anger and fear originating from the amygdala, you know, uh, and being difficult to control. Uh, and we all have amygdalas. <laughs> we, all, we all have limbic systems, right? But you know, what struck me, Sarah, about that graph, and we'll, we'll put it on the blog post. Oh, speaking of which, don't forget to stop by our discoveringdarwin.blogspot.com for additional materials. I'll put this graph up. But Sarah, one of the things that I I was struck by this, so here's what they were doing. They were using for the control, look for words that you associate with color, say color red. And you look for all these other words that, that you often see associated with the word red. And then you do the same thing for other colors. And then you look how other cultures do those associations, right? Mm-hmm. And if all the cultures associate the same words with red, then they would have a, a, a value of one. Right. And then if they uh, do not use the same exact terms, but other terms, that as they degrade overlap, you go down to, you know, ultimately having no correspondence, then it would be zero. So you have a scale from zero to one, right? That's understandable. I was struck that color, which you would think would be going back, well, now, Mark, you've got me doubting myself as I speak because of the Greeks not knowing blue, but you would (laughs) think that these colors would have very strong associations, you know, heat with yellow and red and cool with blue and whatever. Uh, But they find that the average association between these different communities is, what, a 0.4, 0.3, 0.4? It's not that high, right? Right. So even something that we would argue is maybe less controversial shows great variation between cultures in how they describe those, that phenomenon. Well, especially like when you talk about color, because you can really just go and say it's X nanometer length of, uh, you know, that causes that, that, you know, there's some kind of physical thing that is very definable. Um, but you know, I guess it's kind of an interesting, I thought this was just an interesting approach. And so I'm curious to see what Mark thinks about this because it's basically saying, okay, we're going to use language to get at some kind of psychological underpinning that we think and language itself is already, you know, culturally defined and your experience and think about colors. Like if you're living in, uh, whatever, if you're a, um, Siberian, 
person yeah exactly just, i was thinking like if you're living in um if you're an inuit and you probably have a gajillion words for you know white or snow or something like this right or if you're living in you know the amazonian rainforest then you probably are going to be more aware of and have many more colors names for something that's green maybe um so even when it comes to color, right, that's why you get this pretty low overlap in conception. And so then now if we throw something that's even less uh, hard to define as a And I would say, you know, given those those particular environmental contexts, there's a, a, a necessity to be able to distinguish between sort of subtle shades of, you know, whites to blue. If we're talking about, you know, you're walking across places where that's mm -hmm. snow that actually is over frozen mm -hmm. ice that may crack, you know, versus, you know, varying shades of green and that sort of stuff. But, but I think your point actually, uh, Sarah is, is the critical thing to think about in terms of taking this, being, being careful with what we, the kinds of conclusions that we draw from this is that it, it is entirely based on a, an analysis of language and language mm -hmm. use, which again, if we're talking about color, we're talking about symbolic representation of a psychophysical experience, right? right. Which, yeah, uh, which is going to be limited. Like any kind of any operational definition is, you know, uh, going to be flawed a little bit. Not to say that these are operational definitions, but you know what I'm saying, right? This is yeah. trying to communicate in uh, uh, airwaves <laughs> this experience that I'm getting uh, through my photoreceptors into the, you know, visual visual receptor part of my brain. And you know, the one thing that I also I thought was interesting in this paper and I, I don't mean to belabor this paper but it came up mark when I, I don't think this was something we even recorded it was just like our first the three of us discussing how to do this was that you had talked about uh valence and kind of activation are these two major components that kind of define emotions so like the valence is like what is my sense of pleasure versus you know uh -huh. displeasure right um right. it's a, kind of a hedonistic response and then um, activation, which is more of that kind of um, physiological response. And those were the two, and they had kind of the separate experiment where they asked, you know, speakers of those languages to kind of rate the word in terms of its valence and its um, activation, but then four other um, things that are not going to be super important here. But um, it was really those two ideas of valence and activation that were the ones that were allowed that allowed them to that were the things that distinguish do I belong to the grief group of right. emotions or the love group of emotions, just as an example, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that gets though to this this idea of coming back to this: are emotions a uh, socially constructed idea? If across cultures, it's those means of activation and valence that really allow us to categorize sorry i'm getting wild here no knocked my <laughs> microphone allow us to categorize those emotions it suggests to me it's it is something real right it's not just a socially constructed feeling or mood so i'm hearing that um we have this homeostasis point that you're in most of the time mm -hmm. and then when you get a deviation from that homeostasis point we got to put a word to it. We got to call it something. And that homeostasis, if you get shifted to the sadness realm, your heartbeat changes, your temperature changes, you, whatever, your facial muscles change, and then you have a name for it. Whereas if you're happy, 
heartbeat does something different, and then all so we're, it's it's only the shifts from the homeostasis that we end up calling things emotions. Well, and, and I mean, also too, the, they're sort of uh, different kinds of theories of emotion, and and certainly one of the, the one of the bigger divisions of that these cognitive theories of emotions would suggest that another thing that actually has to happen is a cognitive appraisal of your circumstances, right? So you experience this this deviation from homeostasis and increased heart rate, uh, increased blood pressure, respiration, all that sort of stuff. But, and it's done as a response to something in the environment, but we, we have to attend to what is in the environment. Is this a surprise birthday party or is this, I'm seeing a bear in the woods kind of thing. And that determines the emotional experience oh. is the cognitive label. Well, and so would that, is that partly what, where the valence comes from? So it's like the activation is the physiological response and the valence is, is this a good thing happening? Yay. It's a surprise birthday party. Thank you all to, right. Oh dear God, I'm about to be. Eaten. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah and, I, and I would, you know, perhaps the, that, that, that very initial fractions of a second momentary experience of that response to surprise if you think about the, the, the birthday part, it is, you're scared for a second. <laughs> or is, is it someone in my house? Am I being, you know, home invaded here or, and the, you know, the bear is also a surprise. Do you, typically. Do, does that mean that individuals, just, individuals who have um, say sensory uh, 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 um, deficits, if I'm blind or if um, I'm deaf do they have a different range of emotions? Uh, that's an interesting question. And I, I, honestly, I wish I knew the literature a little bit better. But uh, I, I, my understanding is that there, there is some evidence that folks with, and I'm going to have to look this up to make sure that I'm not completely wrong on this, but um, some evidence that there's, a, there's a, a change in the potential emotional experience for folks with spinal cord injuries, right? A kind of hmm. perhaps squashing of emotions. And, and this goes back to, you know, it's sort of used in support of that uh, uh, William James's theory of emotion, that it, everything is really just this bodily response to mm -hmm. some, uh, some event. I do want to ask um, one last thing, at least from my brain's thinking about this, is I'm intrigued... Um, by this notion of what is grief in adults and, and how do we think about grief when we associate with loss? So if, if I think about my wife passing away after 26 years of marriage, right? There is a loss associated with that. And then the grief that comes with that associated loss. Now, it's funny, I, went, I was at my comic book store today and when I was picking up my comics and I was talking to the owners, it's a husband and wife, very awesome comic book store. And I just threw the question out to them about grief. Like, what do they think about uh, what is going on in their mind when they have grief when they lose somebody as an adult? And he said, uh, Stephen said, oh, it's just, it's a selfish response because I now realize that I'm not going to have these things with that person anymore. And it was a really interesting element of looking at that grief, not as, it's, it's because I no longer have um, access to this person and what they give me, right? Companionship mm -hmm. or support or whatever. But he interpreted it as a very selfish response, the grief in adults, when responding to, to loss of non-related individuals. I guess that's what I want to focus on. The loss 
of a spouse, a non-genetically related individual, or a social uh, contact that you have. So just taking a little bit of a step back before we dig into that, wouldn't for a child, anyone, a grief response is a, is a selfish response, right? So going back to what we are talking about for a child, you know, with this kind of attachment theory idea, um, like that loss of uh, a caregiver or whatever absolutely does mean that I'm going <laughs> to probably die, right? So my response is going to be to, to, you know, get around. So it is about what I'm losing is that. What this means for me. From the, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I, I I, I guess I wouldn't see that as differentiating the ontogeny of grief um, personally. But, but I mean, all of our, our experienced emotions outside of the empathic experience of other emotions, it, it's all selfish. It's all selfish. Right? Yeah. It's all, here's what I got. Here's what I lost. I've been threatened. I've, you know, my social status has been challenged. Hmm. It's all me. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, you know, James, the, the nest paper that art, uh, chapter that you put in there is, um, was interesting. And then it would have talked when it, when he was talking about, um, relationships between unrelated people. So like a spouse that, um, or even a strong friendship that what's happening in that situation is you now have a commitment because the commitment now gets you out of tit for tat of like, I did this altruistic thing for you and I'm keeping track of it. But if I'm in this commitment now, I just have the expectation I'm going to do for you, you're going to do for me. And I no longer have to keep track of it. And that, you know, whether this is, you know, maybe it's a byproduct of that, it becomes such that it's obviously costly to enter it because now you're just you're providing these services, if you will, without, um, without saying I'm, I'm keeping score, although I'm sure many married people or committed people have had these experiences where you then go through a litany list when you shouldn't like, I did this for you. So it's costly to join because you're going to be providing these services. (laughs) Um, but it's even more costly to break out of it. And, and is that what the grief is, is this extreme cost now that this particular relationship is done. And then again, Ness kind of goes into the, the grief process, which, you know, if, if, if it is adaptive, is it about not re-engaging in that costly relationship? But it can't always be about, I, I don't think, um, like actual cost. You, you think of, you know, you, you've got a, a, a partner, a lifelong partner that is entirely dependent on you, right? Because of some neurological disorder or whatever. I mean, when that partner passes away, you still grieve. You still feel that loss. It's an emotional loss. It's not a, you know, it's a, you, your life is actually perhaps going to get a little easier, right? Uh, uh, but um, it doesn't diminish the grief at all. Did, did I misunderstand what you were saying? Yeah, no, I mean, no, because he, uh, to be honest, I, I wasn't quite sure what to take home out of his chapter because he went through kind of a lot of different, you know, like approaches like attachment theory and then this, you know, mm-hmm. commitment thing. And sometimes he seemed to be arguing that grief is just a byproduct of this important attachment. Um, and then other times right. he kind of, he kind of went a different, a different way with it. So I'm just kind of floating out these yeah. kind of different things that he brought up in the chapter. Yeah. I mean, my understanding, the, the attachment stuff is, you know, tied to Bowlby, right. Um, um, 
And I, 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 don't, I don't think Bowlby's intention, at least at the onset, really was to describe that grieving process. It really was attachment between, you know, uh, offspring and primary caregiver. Right. Yeah. We kind of like the, uh, you know, Kubler-Ross stuff that's become sort of mainstream when we think about grief, these, you know, five stages of mm -hmm. grief. Uh, was it intended really to talk about grief of loss, right? She was describing uh, how terminal patients deal with their impending death, right? They go through that, uh, right, those stages of denial and anger and all that sort of stuff. And is, is that true for, for in that context as well, or has that just been a simplistic uh, interpretation of what people can or can't go through? Well, I, it, it, it seems to hold much more that, that uh, the Kubler-Ross stuff holds much more to, to describing folks dealing with terminal illness way, way, way better than it does with people describing uh, people dealing with grief right over a, 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 the loss of someone. So what is the purpose of a grief counselor then? Do, it... Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, if you I mean, historically psychologists have kind of changed in the last 20 years or so how they think about dealing with grief. And, and it's kind of moved from uh, dealing with grief in the sense of getting over things, right? Let's just, let's get you past this, put this in your history, it's behind you, to uh, a kind of uh, acceptance, like a, like a reframing. This, this is an experience. Um, it's not about moving on and forgetting the person that, uh, uh, or, you know, distancing yourself from the person that's been lost, but kind of um, reframing to a certain extent, like recognizing the importance of this person in your life, uh, the kind of impact that they had on, on you and, and em embracing the grief as an experience, a necessary experience. Which I think is interesting because going back to Sarah, to that chapter, Ness, uh, who, that's how I decided to call him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, conjures up this idea, this sort of a mental exercise or experiment of if there was a pill that was created that completely numbed grief, like just took it away, um, you know, would that be a good thing? And, and would you take it? And, and it seems to me that, you know, talking to people as I'm thinking about this podcast, most people I've talked to would say, no, I wouldn't take that pill. I need the grief because that's part of of what I need, and which I think is intriguing that you would and, accept that. Because if I said you- wouldn't recommend it. They would not prescribe that pill. But, you, but if you I said assimilate to you, this experience. Sorry. I'm going to pull your tooth out and I, I can take away the pain of that tooth extraction. Everybody would be like, yes, give me that painkiller. <laughs> so why is that pain acceptable and wanted to be blocked and the grief pain not acceptable and not wanted to be blocked? You're asking me? We're, we're looking asking at you. Anybody. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I certainly would never equate the loss of a tooth to the loss of a spouse. <laughs> no, it's the pain. It's not that. No, I'm talking about you can block this kind of, you know, pain right. or block two different this kind of pain. Yeah, but why, why are they so different? Well, yeah, why? Two, two totally different pains, right? But you know, is it not? I would argue the reason you wouldn't want to block the grief pain is because we've already had strong selection against people who exhibit no grief. And we do not like those kinds of people. And so we don't want to be those kinds of people for that, for that very reason. All those kinds of people have been pushed out of society and selected against. And so it's not like we really want to have that grief. It's more like we don't want to be associated with those people who don't exhibit grief. Well, I mean, 
like one of the arguments in that chapter is really about like, what is grief? Is it a byproduct or is it adaptive? Right. And so that, I mean, I think that's kind of part of where this conversation is jumping around, Mm -hmm. right. Which is that if there's, if it truly is a byproduct, then yeah, the the anti-grief pill should be a good thing. Right. But so if people think I shouldn't get this pill, then that would suggest that there is some kind of adaptive value to grief and and kind of towards the end of the chapter he does kind of he lays it out as a question he just says is grief um essentially shaped to cope with the adaptive challenges of losing a loved one i i think in a in a social context that humans live in absolutely right that expression of grief draws people to you it solicits help right yeah, but why uh, is it so weird that if you exhibit no expression of grief, all of a sudden you're like not socially acceptable? Because we live in a, I mean, I would say, because even in Darwin obliquely re- refers to it, you look at other social animals and they express something that is kind of, a, I would argue, is akin to grief. And I think we talked about this on another episode at one point, but, you know, elephants returning back to the site of where a herd member died or you know uh the whale carrying its its calf along after all those kinds of things now now ness kind of gets at the like oh well that's attachment theory really like because you're uh the the cost of giving up too early on an offspring is much higher than just letting it go but i always i guess i always think with like elephants in particular because you see everybody and i know they're related but Anyway, I don't know. I'm getting down this path, but it does seem like it's not just a uniquely human thing, right, to express this kind of sense of loss. And like Mark said, it does bring people to you to comfort you. So if you don't express it at all, how do you even form connections at all in this kind of social society? I guess that's where I was trying to get to. That, yeah, of course, I'm going to think you're a freaking sociopath because you, you are not affected by this. But I can see how, I guess I can understand a stabilizing selection, the fact that if I'm overexpressive of this grief, I'm not able to make new right. bonds. Attachments. Right. But, but even, yeah. I mean, there's still so much, so much variation, so much individual difference in terms of grief expressions that it's it's difficult to say. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, some people respond by completely shutting down, right? They almost become robots, right? And others are seemingly unconsolable, right? They're just prostrate on the ground and uh, the wailing and gnashing of teeth. And all those are arguably, again, from a psychologist's perspective, legitimate expressions of grief, like legitimate ways of, of I mean, how people address whatever loss they're, they're dealing but, with. But don't psychologists, going back to what we talked about earlier, they have Sarah's, you know, stabilizing selection argument. Yeah, you gotta, you can express grief within these ranges. Anything less or anything more is weird. Well, and even Darwin, right? He's talking about all these people in the. I think doesn't he call it an insane asylum, whatever it's called at that point. And a lot of them are expressing this overabundance, like what he's deeming as overabundance of grief. And not that I'm saying the Victorians handled mental health well. I'm not trying to claim that, but yes. And I think the the term that we use now is complex grief, right? That's the grief that seems to be you know uh, extended in some form or fashion. Um, and yeah, I don't, 
it's it's not something that necessarily specifically needs addressing from a mental health perspective until it starts to interfere with your ability to work and love, you know, and, and, and you know, be be social. And <laughs> James is not buying what you're putting down. I can see <laughs> well, right, so, so wait, wait, so James, let me throw it back at you. What what is an appropriate amount of time to express, <laughs> express grief? Then. It's not that I'm in yeah, two weeks, buddy. Get over it. <laughs> well, my workplace only gives me one day of free. <laughs> I think it is in the handbook, isn't it, Sarah? I think you get like one day off for a loss. I don't depends know. on how. And it, it depends, it depends on how, on how related. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just like my graph I was imagining. So, no, Mark, I'm intrigued by the notion that we all agree that we wouldn't take that pill to block the grief, where we'd all agree we'd take that pill to block the physical pain of a tooth extraction. So that's, I'm not, the extraction part isn't the loss isn't what we're getting at, it's the different physical pain or emotional pain. But I'm also intrigued by the fact that you were going earlier saying cultures have different acceptable ways to express guilt, uh, a grief, right? Are, did any cultures say, don't express any grief? Buckle up, keep your, you know, I mean, the no. British, going back to Darwin's argument about the Brits being pretty uh, tight-lipped and upper-lipped. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the, the picture I was showing you guys earlier of, uh, of uh, different groups in grief, the photo of the young uh, people crying as the soldiers were going down the parade, the, the headline of it said, a uncharacteristic British response to, because it was a public expression of grief. But I'm wondering, is the cultural variation, there's nobody really saying, I got, well, maybe I just contradicted myself. The British don't like public expression of guilt, but they don't, uh, uh, guilt, grief, but they uh, don't say you can't have any grief. Right, yeah. So, like, proper context, proper expression, but. Yeah, and, I mean, the, and there's a, there's a difference between expression and experience. And, you know, uh, Kaddish occurs in home. You're inside, right? And people come to you, uh, and when they come to you, everybody's sitting on the ground, the mirrors are covered, the candles are going, clothes are torn. Uh, but it's not something that occurs in public. It doesn't happen on the streets. It's private. Mm -hmm. And then you keep going. You've got a week. you got seven days. <laughs> and again, it's not, it's not get over it, because you know, uh, on the anniversary of the loved one's death every year at services, you, there's a special prayer that you say, and you light a particular kind of candle. So, uh, and you do that for the rest of your life. Even if you don't want to, <laughs> if you got over it and you moved on <laughs> and you've married again. I never really liked him anyway. Damn, <laughs> I mean, I liked him enough. But... <laughs> like that again the Ness article where they talk about these like um you know older people who lose spouses and they survey them at like different points and ask them these things basically more or less or like hey did are you missing this person are you grieving this person and it was like a really high like to me seemed a high percentage like a third of of people were like nah i'm cool nah i never had issues um which, you know, I don't know, maybe that just says something about how pair bonds were formed yeah. in the 50s, years. but, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, it is interesting. Well, is there any other um, 
issues about grief that we'd like to touch upon? Um, I, I, I think uh, I'm curious wanna, about it, but go ahead, Sarah. Well, I was going to say the one thing because because I'm always struggling reading this book is the the theory, connecting it back to the theory. And we spent, you know, a whole first episode talking about his principles. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about whether or not he is supporting any of his principles. I thought, so this is kind of starts around 188. And again, a nice, you know, Darwin using his children as um, experimental (laughs) subjects. And he basically tells them to stare at the bright sky (laughs) and then notices that they make the same, um, a very similar expression to the grief expression that, you know, the, the obliquity of the, um, uh, of the eyebrows. And then also says that those are similar to the muscles that are contracted to protect the eyes when crying and weeping from our last one. So to me, he seemed to be getting at, although he never explicitly stated his first principle, which was the one of serviceable associated habits. So saying like, these are a, either a protective thing that you do because you're staring at the sun or, um, B, it is something that you're already doing when you're expressing the that first immediacy of grief, which might be crying, and that in the suppression of the actual crying, you create this expression, and then it just becomes associated with but, it. But if it was that principle, wouldn't he argue that... I may, so the idea was he had the he saw where the sun was relative to a tree, right? And he mm-hmm. said, look up at the top of that tree, knowing mm-hmm. the sun was right behind it. And the kids did that, and they made that facial expression, as you, as you point out. Would that first principle then argue that as they looked up at the sun and their face went into that expression, they all of a sudden were sad? They had grief because their face triggered that. I mean, the, their no, faces I... and that emotion, emotional state, so then the emotion comes with it. I guess I always thought Darwin kind of, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm no, I'm curious. I, yeah, I guess I was thinking it, and it was stronger when he talked about, Oh, well, and then when you, uh, you contract similar muscles when you're trying, when you cry. And so when you try not to cry, then it causes that expression, which Ekman didn't agree with. But, mm-hmm. um, I guess to me, I always thought that associated habit was like something, yeah, you do in, in response to a stimulus causes this whatever physical thing to happen and then it becomes associated with that state through time the other thing i thought it could have been mark's principle well i say mark's principle just because i'm thinking of like which we which one we each had to deal with that time Uh, but the nerve force i was like well maybe it's just this uncontrollable like i thought of that in terms of looking at the bright sky that that maybe was more that it's like Oh, I got all this. It's so much going on, and all I can do is just see. Get I rid thought of it was nerve force. I thought it was. Is it the second principle, the principle of antithesis? In yep. that, and and I showed you guys a bunch of photos because I was moving down that path. That if we look at faces of people in grief, do they look almost an opposite to faces of people who are happy or super happy? But now that we've disassociated grief with sadness, maybe it's a different emotion that I should be thinking of as the opposite of grief and not sadness. I mean, yeah, not, yeah, so anyway. But there definitely is the grief expression as I showed you guys the picture, and we'll put some on the blog post. The eyebrows are really distinctive. 
I think I think by our definitions too, the the experience. If if I were to push to come up with an opposite of grief, it it certainly would be joy, right? We think of grief as being associated with loss, and happiness is what happens when we get what we want, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that it should but, be happiness. But, but, well, but that's that's different than I think what Darwin is talking about. In, in the sense of it's a it's a physiological expression, a physiological opposite, right? Uh, an ex- expressionary opposite. Right. So, what would I? Look yeah, the at? An- antithesis. Yeah, the antithesis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, what right. would the antithesis of grief be then? In terms of expressions? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Wait, I thought you just said it was <laughs> happiness or joy. No, I said by our by our definitions, yeah, uh, you know, the 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 things that are the source of the experience. Uh, oh, because you're getting right. grief. Grief comes from of loss. loss. Happiness comes from gain. Okay. Yeah. So they are antithetical in that sense. Right. But then I think, I think Darwin is also though arguing that, oh, if I if I express this on grief, right, I will have this other sign, not necessarily because it's serviceable or anything like that, but just because it's the exact opposite, opposite. right, of it. Right. Um, so we need to have like Spock eyebrows when we're happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at least the downturn corners and the upturn corners of your mouth, right, that smiling works. versus like the long face. Yeah. Of course, that's the next chapter, right? Is joy and happiness and and maybe he'll give us some parents. antithesis finally. Yeah, maybe he but will. What, like, what is I? It's just weird to me that he said like you know it was the first what it was a big chunk because it was a a chapter chapters. and then three more chapters, right? Wasn't it? It was three. It was like the intro chapter and then one for each. Yes, that is correct. Right? right. Yeah. So that was a lot of space, and then he only kisses right up against what these principles may be applied so it's just very strange to me he wrote the book very fast <laughs> that, that's right this is the first draft this is like our student yeah. papers yeah. Like he wrote, the night before it was like, due he just cranked you know, like, out hey don't you remember you to, this idea that you introduced in the yeah, beginning exactly. of this uh, do re- remember everything we're doing is in service of our thesis statement charles <laughs> what was your thesis statement <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've uh, given enough grief on this uh, chapter. <laughs> hey, we were like thinking we were going to struggle to talk about this. Look yeah. at that. We just filled well, up two you know, hours. This, this is where I think uh, Darwin is amazing. I mean, it, it reminds me of like having an, you know, you go to iron your shirt and you pull the ironing board up in your living room and you iron your shirt. And after a while, you get tired of putting the iron board away. So you just leave it in your living room sitting there. <laughs> And they iron your shirts every week. And then your friends come over and they're like, what's that ironing board doing in your living room, right? Because all of a sudden it looks weird to them. To me, that's what Darwin does. He makes, he's, makes me the visitor of the house that I am so familiar with. And I'm like, oh, yeah, grief is weird. Anyway, so yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Um, so, so next time? next time are we just gonna do chapter eight joy high spirits love tender feelings devotion i don't know about any of these things <laughs> they've been <laughs> they've been sucked subtly, out of the bone yeah from you. it's like in um the princess bride at the end when they have the like the machine that they hook wesley up to <gasps> and it sucks out like a year of his life at a time. I feel like 2020 has done that to me. <laughs> halfway there and it's sucked out the whole year. Um, let's see. But yeah, here. this next chapter seems quite distinct from the chapter that follows it. I don't. 
know that we yeah, should I'm, yeah i'm and so I have interested say- like when we get done with this i do kind of want to talk about the structure of the book because as i'm like looking now at the ones to come it just seems like it's like kind of haphazardly yeah it's totally organized right. yeah. Yeah. yeah okay there's, there's not this draft. And maybe this is part of, yeah. you know, uh, how he's, you know, it's, it's not this collection of positive emotions, negative emotions, right? Yeah. Let's talk. It's so I, I don't know if he's even thinking about them that way. Yeah. I, I am kind of curious as to what's the, where's the thread that ties these together. In yeah. ter- and it's got to be in terms of how he's thinking about expression, right? Muscle activation yeah. in the face. Right. But I, I don't know what it is. Well, I can tell you that the the illustrations in this chapter are just, they don't fit to me at all what he's talking about, so we can talk about that as well. But yes, I think, Sarah, we'll just stick with chapter eight, joy, high spirits, love, tender feelings, devotion. Anyway, Sarah, I know you're looking forward to chapter nine, because that's that's sulkiness. I know. My favorite. <laughs> Ill temper. I got it all. I got it all. Anyway... Thank you, uh, listener, for sticking with us. We appreciate it. And as always, check out our uh, discoveringdarwin.blogspot.com for the most recent episode and additional materials that we post on there. Uh, The figures, we'll put some of the figures from the paper that we read and also a link to the paper in case you're wanting to see the pretty graphs. And I'll put in a couple pictures. Again, thank you, and I uh, wish you a good month ahead. (laughs) Good luck. Good luck. Oh, my God. I hope we I hope we have another episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's the November month I'm worried about. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well thanks guys. Thank you. We need to clap. <laughs> no, no, you do not need to clap. <laughs> <laughs>